Amen. Hey, that was fun. How about Redfern back there on those drums? <laughs> he said he only broke two or three sticks during the first service. <laughs> he did. And he knew I was going to ask about it in the second service. So there you go, right there, proof. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, apparently some of the, just, to, just in case you got confused, especially if you're a guest here, apparently some of the baskets didn't get put back out between the services. And so uh, if you're going, oh, I've got this, I wanted to give this or whatever. If, if you head to the back corner, when we're done, if you head down the back hallway, there's a little, pl- a little slot in the wall where we put checks and stuff if you need to do that, if that's important to you today, or you can wait till next time or whatever. So um, just letting you know about it because I don't want you to be going, oh, they said to pass the baskets and there were no baskets. So um, anyway, I want to get to the cornerstones here in a second, but especially on today, I want to reference this tendency among uh, Christians, especially uh, American, I, I don't know that it's not true outside of this, but especially seems to be true in American Christians and Christian publishing and Christian speaking of this need to create <laughs> false dichotomies. Um, to create these dichotomies that, that I think are not right. And, and I, I, there are true dichotomies. Now, just understand, there are true dichotomies in the Christian world. The flesh versus the spirit is an actual dichotomy. This is a versus statement that's appropriate. The sin versus righteousness, this is, that's a real thing. And so those are real dichotomies. But, but we love to put a versus in place of an and um, in our conversations, we like sovereignty versus free will, or gift versus calling, or freedom versus obedience, or complementarianism versus equality, or thinkers versus doers, or even hymns versus praise music. Like we, we, love, to, we love to put a verses in there rather than, than understanding that many, many of these things can be, can be and statements, or we can at least take what is good from them. And I am, I am very much so one of our philosophies at South Spring is to instead just to put an and where we, where we can. And so I'm kind of, I am heaven bent on us finding where is the, the value in that, where can we do that? And, and I feel like this week for some reason, and I didn't get to check social media much this week, but when I did, the battle that seemed to be going on with Christians is the idea of, of patriotism you know, versus worshiping Christ, or I guess it's because July 4th was happening on, on a Sunday. And so this was a this was a big battle going on, at least, at least in my circles, maybe not in yours, but in the, in the pastor circles. And this idea of going, well, you know, where to go from patriotism and appreciation into nationalism and worship of government or something like that. And, and I, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I mean, I really do feel like there is an appropriate, uh, I know that's a crazy concept, the idea of appropriate, um, but an appropriate way to integrate some of these things within the church. And one of the ways we do it as a church um, to celebrate and appreciate things like national holidays and, and stuff like that. One, we, before the service, or at the very beginning of the service, we had the national anthem this morning, another encouragement to you to be on time for church. We do special things right at the beginning sometimes that you're just going to miss if you don't make it on time. And so, one, that's that the kind of thing. But also the big fireworks event that we do every year, and we had a huge uh, you know, experience again this year and got to do it. But I know many of you either aren't, they aren't there, aren't able to be there, or you're there and you're working. And so I thought I would summarize kind of our appreciation and our appreciation for God's good gifts um, in the midst of, of where we live and, and how we get to experience life here. And by reading um, a segment of what I said right before the fireworks themselves. And so I want to, I'll just read a little bit of this. So again, don't be confused in a second, like I'm going to introduce myself or reference in this or reference that it's in the evening. I'm, I'm, I'm reading what I wrote for then. Okay, so don't let that throw you. All right, so 
Here's what I said that day. I, hello, I'm Chris Legg, one of the pastors at South Spring. Um, last year, which was definitely a little different, was our 10th year for fireworks. It's a joy for South Spring every year. Um, what a challenging time this has been this last year. At every level, we're being reminded that as great as this country can be, this world is not our home. We live in a country that was an experiment on one grand idea, that all humans were created equal by God, equally bearing His image, equally His treasure, equally endowed with certain rights given by Him. But like the snake was in the garden, from the first moments this experiment was shown to be more aspirational than reality. Of course, none of us should be surprised by that. Over 200 years, we have drawn nearer and nearer to the ideals set forth by our founders. Ideals drawn not from other humans, but from God who places the obligation on us. And here we are within a week or two, a week or so from two great celebrations of freedom. Of course, the first is July 4th which we're celebrating today, when those ideals were ratified in the Declaration of Independence. To this day, we as representatives of Jesus Christ are continuing to learn to stand in unity in the battle against injustice, especially as His church. Though we've always been flawed in our efforts, we count on the sanctifying work of God's Spirit who invented rights and freedom to grow us up. And the second date is Juneteenth, when American soldiers came to this great state to proclaim that a vital test in the experiment had finally been passed, that those living in ungodly slavery could finally experience freedom from that enslavement. As Christians, we get to celebrate the good gifts of our nation and of one another and of our differences and similarities that allow us to live in unity without devolving either into uniformity nor hatred. And our final song tonight, meaning that night, um, will be a reminder of what I said first, uh, that this, as great as it can be, is not our home. There is a better life with Christ starting now and lasting forever. And we're invited into the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight, who invites us to run out of our graves and into the glorious day for eternity. Please consider making the decision tonight to follow Jesus, whether for the first time or in a new way. And thanks for being here and come back anytime. And then we closed with, now in honor of appreciation for the generations of men and women who have served, suffered, and all too often died to protect our imperfect nation, as well as the God-given freedoms. And then we have everybody stand and we do the national anthem. So if you got to be there for that, it's a great time, a great experience, and a great reminder to us, again, to thank God for the efforts and sacrifices of the men and women over generations um, who have represented us and represented God in their efforts to do that. And ultimately, that our freedom comes from Christ and not from humans um, and not from human efforts. And that, that someday what we call the United States of America will cease to exist. Um, but the kingdom of God and his word lasts forever. And so all those things get to be true at once. And so we get to celebrate that in a, in a really cool way. And I think we can, without making it a versus, a false dichotomy, we can just make it a, a, in unity. All right, so jumping into 1 Peter chapter 2 today, and we'll see this happen here as well. So last week, um, uh, Paul really did a good job unpacking these uh, these terrible traits, looking at those, the terrible traits that, that, um, that Peter lists in this book that can cripple us, that create dissatisfaction in us, that, that create discontent in us, and the, the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And, and I love that, that Paul referenced the idea of the, the pre-baptism like pre clothes and the post-baptism clothes. The, the idea that these filthy rags that we're wearing need to come off and we need to put on clean things and be washed. And, and that's the picture that Peter seems to be creating here is 
Yet again, this exchange, the exchange that we see all through this, this letter from Peter, what we call 1 Peter, this exchange, this for that. And we got a great picture of that coming back from the Dominican Republic uh, yesterday with a, a mission team who went down there to Harbacoa. And, and we got a great picture of that. I'm sure it will, there will be many stories that weave their way into the sermons over the next few weeks um, as you get to hear about it. I recommend you ask uh, those who went about that and to hear their uh, experiences. And if you've not gone, we go at least, typically at least once a year or twice a year down there to a place that really is becoming like a second home for many of us um, intentionally so that we can all experience that together. I'd love to encourage you. We had many go for the first time. In fact, the vast majority for the first time this time. It was, a, it was great. But we had an interesting experience in that one of the big tasks that we had to do was to lay the, the concrete for a basketball course, uh, basketball court. And, and, and that means like when the group showed up, it was jungle. And when we were done, it was a basketball court. And so that's a lot of work to do in just four days. Um, and so it involved a lot. And, and by the way, their idea down there, when we go down there to mix concrete, to mix cement into concrete, it is you, you get several dozen bags and you put them on the ground with huge wheelbarrow loads of sand and gravel, and then you pour water in it and you stand out there in the middle of it, kicking and scraping and dragging and trying to mix it up. And well, we learned something interesting this time, because we've never done it quite to, anything, to this extent, is that if you continue to put back on concrete-soaked clothes, clothes soaked with concrete and water and sweat and dirt and sand, especially shoes and socks like that, is that the combination of the lime and the concrete becomes so base that it begins to give you chemical burns, and the, and the abrasive nature of the concrete will rub open sores onto your feet. And so some of, could they, I could bring them up on stage, I will not, uh, to show you just how damaging not taking off the old clothes and washing and putting on fresh clothes, just how damaging that can be. And then we got this great picture of that this week as we looked at it, um, as, as these guys experienced this over and over again during the week. We've seen this, you've probably seen it in sermons if you've grown up in church many times, this idea presented in John chapter 11, which is the account of Lazarus who was dead. Jesus waited uh, four days, and by the time he showed up, Lazarus had been dead four days, um, and, and then he comes and... Uh, and raises his friend from the dead. He revivifies him. He brings life back to his dead body. We see in John eleven forty four, the man who had died came out, meaning Lazarus, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many sermons have been preached on those few words about the need for us to take off our grave clothes even once we're brought back to life, that learning to exchange the, the old for the new. An excellent way to understand Peter's letter is to see it as teaching how to put off and live without our grave clothes. <clears throat> Here in the first part of chapter 2, he is still again and again all through chapter 1 and into chapter 2 trying to put into words just how great the salvation is that Jesus has offered us. If you do not know Jesus, so far, every single passage and every single sermon we've done in 1 Peter, as encouraging as it may have been for those who are believers, should have been especially significant for you. If you've been here and you're a non-believer, I hope you have sensed that, and I don't know what you're waiting for, to ask yourself maybe this morning, what more you are demanding of the gospel? What box do you feel like the good news has not yet checked for you? What is it that the gospel is missing that you're wanting? 
Because here will come another one today, and I want you to pay attention because maybe it will fill that in those blanks for you. Here we are. Instead of being filled with the, the feelings of malice and hypocrisy, the things that will tear us down and destroy us, that give us a sense of discontent and unease and unhappiness kind of all the time. Instead, verse 4, as you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But Peter's going to take this concept and he's going to connect it to the way that we're all temples. Also, in a sense, like individual stones within that temple, within that spiritual house. Again, back to verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what makes this emphasis so special? What is it that's, I, I'm going to draw attention to the fact, and I'm going to make the claim this morning, that I believe this is Peter's best pitch. At least it's his favorite pitch for what the gospel really is. What makes it so special in drawing the relationship, this relationship between us and Christ, Peter's going to quote two different passages from Isaiah and another one from Psalms. Isaiah 28:16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 8, which, which we heard more of that passage a second ago. Isaiah 8.14 and 15 says, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. It's like he has for some reason, and this is an interesting concept, maybe this is his best plea, but isn't it intriguing that, that Peter has taken these verses so scattered throughout Scripture and brought them together in the way that he has? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But maybe there's something special to this for Peter. It's almost like I got the image of the idea that, that Peter had scoured the whole, what we would call Old Testament, what he would have called the Scriptures, that Peter had scoured all of Scriptures trying to find references to stones. What would motivate Peter to want to spend so much time just, just going through Scripture and finding passages about stones and then making this connection that he makes to the role of stones. They have various roles. Sometimes they're made for building, but sometimes they're calls for stumbling. And he, he puts these pieces together. What would cause him to do that? Well, maybe, some of you are already picking up on what I'm saying here, maybe we get a hint of this in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's interesting the word stone that we see all throughout this passage is, is a word that means cut stone, like a stone for building. But the word rock, the rock of offense, that is the word petros, where we get the word Peter. Remember, Jesus, Jesus declared that Peter, when Peter made his proclamation 
that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God, that Jesus said, upon my rock, upon this rock I will build my church. In one sense, it's, it's like Peter's proclamation inspires Jesus to say, listen, you want a foundation? That's the foundation, and you get now the nickname of being the one who declared the foundation, right? And so I think that's exactly what happened. I don't know if any of you have done that. You've ever found your, your, your name in the Bible or something like that, and then you look it up and go find everywhere that people with your name are talked about or, or read those or focuses or whatever. But for the Jewish Simon, and especially for Simon Peter, the rock upon which Christ would build his church, or at least his proclamation, could any concept like this have any more importance to him? A stone. Or what it means that we are stones in this. How deeply did he feel this? And at the personal level, this must be his best pitch at the gospel. So let's, let's take the time to look at it and, and really dig into it. Let's look what Peter's telling us. Verse 4 again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's what I love about this passage. If you're at all like me, about a third of the way through, you hear nothing but white noise. You hear, for those of you who are old enough, the Charlie Brown teacher voice is what you start hearing as I'm teaching through this because these concepts are so foreign to us, we just don't even have a place to put them. They all just kind of like Bible words, Bible words, Bible words, Bible words, Bible words, Bible words. And you're, I've now, by the way, I've read that now three or four times in the sermon. And if you've not caught yourself that you do it, you get through the first sentence and then you don't hear what, then you start thinking about lunch, right? And it's like, what, this is, this is, we are, this is such a foreign concept to us. I submit that in the year 2021, it is not possible for us as, as Christians in America to understand the significance of this to Peter. We cannot fully wrap our brains around it. It is not possible for us to do it. I prayed this week that God would give me the words to try to unpack in just the tiniest piece of what this would mean for us, of what this teaching actually means for us. I wish we could get it the way he does. Some consider this the ultimate expression for Peter of the gospel that he's been telling us about over and over again. So let's go back. Who were we? Nobodies. Nobodies. Especially, and we're going to unpack that even more next week, especially us as Gentiles. Nobodies. If anything, rebels. Rejected by God. Wish we could get at this. But what was he? What was he? What was, the, what was Jesus? Well, he was rejected by men. He knows what it's like to be rejected. Think about, think about the rejection Jesus faced. The people of his own hometown tried to kill him. I don't know how they treat you in your hometown, but I bet it's not that bad. His religious leaders, who he should have been able to look to and trust, had determined to have him murdered. His own disciples would abandon him at his arrest. At one point, his own family proclaimed him insane. He was rejected by family, by friends, by the authorities. Have you felt that? Have you felt rejected, isolated, alone? insulted, unloved, he gets it. He fully gets it. Completely gets it. Probably in ways we don't get the level of rejection he experienced. He felt it too. Jesus was rejected by the ignorant. He was rejected by the short-sighted and the foolish and the unloving. But he was chosen 
by the omniscient, the all-knowing. To God's eyes, though rejected by men, he was chosen and precious, a living stone. And here's what's wild. That would be, that's a cool understanding for us of Jesus. But then Peter puts that in one phrase and immediately gets to, begins to unpack this picture, that we are like him in this. The passage lets us know that we are identified with Christ in this way, rejected by men, but chosen by God. And by the way, chosen as in like tolerated, put up with, like fine, I'll take him on my team if no one else wants him. Is that the picture that we get that he's putting up with us? No, no. Remember, he ransomed us with the greatest treasure of all time. The greatest commodity of all time. Not that junk, not silver and gold, not that trash, but the blood of Jesus Christ was spent on us. We are treasures to him. What is the obvious response? The rest of this sermon is going to be just like, I think, straight from this passage. What is the obvious response to finding out that we have been chosen? What is the obvious response to being chosen? And by the way, not just chosen. Chosen, to quote Peter, like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To hide away in a dark closet under the stairs in shame? No, no. To be the stones in his house. To be treasure Matthew 13, my favorite, I think, of Jesus' parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, this is a great parable, and I've heard it taught many times in the past, and I think my very, it's a great application of this, is that we should be willing to sell everything to get Jesus. Of course we should. That is taught in many passages. I just don't think it's taught in this passage. I think these parables, all of the lost parables, are teaching us this. We are a treasure found in a field that He sold everything to get. We are His treasure. Others just see a field. That's it. Just a field. You realize there's, a, there's someone getting taken in this parable. There's someone who's selling a, a treasure for the price of a field. And here we have Jesus with great joy giving up everything in order to buy this field because he knows it's actually treasure. That's us. This, this picture, it's, I, think, I think we fall into kind of two categories. We fall either into the category of thinking that we're kind of all that. Like, like isn't God lucky to have me? Right? That's kind of our mindset. Hey, did you a big favor today, God? I went to church. You kind of owe me a little now. Right? I'm the, I'm the, that have that mindset, that that's our natural inborn mindset, is that somehow, you know, we're, we're kind of doing him a favor. I think the other opposite viewpoint is often, again, we have this dichotomy, is the viewpoint that, that we're just totally worthless and, and that we're just trash and that God could never use us or whatever that type of language is. It, it actually reminds me of one of, my, uh, one of my favorite speakers in all time. I don't always agree with him by any means, but um, I was very greatly influenced as a speaker by a guy named Tony Campolo, who's a sociologist and a pastor um, from in the past. And he has a great story about getting up one Sunday, and he's, um, he's, a, uh, he's a sociologist in Philadelphia, and he, he goes to a predominantly African-American church. And the pastor, who was his mentor, is a famous African-American pastor. And the, the pastor gets up one Sunday and, and gets done with his sermon and says, uh, uh, Tony, why don't, you, why don't you get up and do the prayer for us? And, uh, and of course, Tony tells us very well, but, uh, but uh, Tony, Dr. Campolo, not like he and I hang out, Tony, um, Dr. Campolo gets up and says, um, 
and says, uh, starts his prayer, says, oh Lord, though we are worthless, and the pastor gets up and says, Tony, stop preaching, stop praying. We are not worthless, we are unworthy. You may continue your prayer, and then sit back down. <laughs> this is a beautiful picture for us of this idea. We're, we're, it, isn't, it isn't that we are worthless, that's not right either. We are treasure, declared as treasure by God. In following Jesus, we share with Him this identity, the fulfillment of, check this, the ceremonial law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, of the Levitical and ceremonial law. He's the total fulfillment of it. And because this is hard for me to say, it sounds like blasphemy when I say it, but because we are with Him, we partake in this, we are now also the fulfillment of the law. We are the spiritual house. The stones of the spiritual house, the temple. We are the holy priesthood. And we are the ones who offer sacrifices. And not just any sacrifices, sacrifices acceptable to God. Going back to what we talked about with all these conversations that this must create between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. It just cracks me up to imagine the Jewish believers. This, this probably must have taken them weeks and weeks to work through with the Jewish believers trying to explain to the Gentile believers what all this means. Who does this apply to? A Gentile audience. Us. We're going to talk more on this in the next few minutes and more in the next few weeks. But for now, you know something kind of interesting about South Spring that you may not know. This room is not a sanctuary. And we call it the great room when people want to use it. And, and every once in a while, people will get that confused. They'll say, I can't believe you take donuts into the sanctuary. Like, oh, yeah, that would be bad. This isn't a sanctuary. Um, this isn't a sanctuary. This is a great room. This is this is why we eat in here and drink in here and play in here. Buildings aren't temples anymore. We are. This is a theological consequence of the new covenant. God's law isn't written on tablets, but on our hearts. This is what I asked God to somehow uh, this week show me this, and I was, I was stunned with how he showed this to me. We can't even put this into the words. We can't, we can't fully wrap this up, but I'm going to try Understand, we are, we are now the fulfillment of the temple, of the Holy of Holies, of, of, Christ's, of, of God's work in this. Before, there was a single small room, one. There was one small room, the Holy of Holies, where the Spirit dwelt. That one small room in one building on the top of only one hilltop in the middle of one city on the entire planet. Just one. And by the way, it was so sacred that only one man could go in and only one time a year. That was the, that's what Peter was used to. And then Peter tells us, that is now each of us. It goes from just this one, this so narrow, Peter had no chance of ever seeing the Holy of Holies. Every Jewish boy's dream 
The most important place on the entire planet, a small room in a medium-sized temple on this one hilltop in this one city where only one person could go one time a year. It was so isolated and so individualized and so separated out. He could never get even close. He couldn't even go in the building as not a, a, a priest. And a, and a woman couldn't go into the court, and, and the, a Gentile couldn't even go where she could go, and, and it, it just expands out. And he goes, no, no, now that that is each and every one of us. We carry the Holy of Holies with us everywhere we go. We are now the stones to build that room. We are now the stones to build that spiritual house. That's us. This is the shocking nature of this. Dare we even think this? How would it transform our lives if we caught just a picture of this? Even the smallest bit of it. A, a, verse, a passage we're memorizing as a church right now, Hebrews 19, 10, 19 through 25. I'm not quite finished it, and I don't want to stumble through it. So, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, the curtain, the separating curtain of the Holy of Holies. And he tore that thing apart with his death, dividing the gap between God and man. Through the curtain, I mean that is through his flesh. He was the curtain torn open for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now listen to this, let us draw near. Where? Again? The holy place? Let us draw near again with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near." If you bring a first century Jew, if we brought them now and said, by the way, here's the consequence of the new covenant, sir, is that we are now the holy of holies. Our own souls are the holy of holies. And he would say, well, that must transform your life at every level. Everything must be totally different. Wait, the holy, you carry the holy of holies around inside of you? A place I would not have dared to even go near, and you carry it around in your own person? That's, that's crazy. How, how would I possibly give that to me? Please, sir, tell me how to find this, how to know this, how to experience this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. He says it again in Ephesians 2. 19 through 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that's us, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the picture that, Paul, uh, that Peter is giving us. That the living embodied, this is the good news. You went from being rejected by men or rejected by God, where you went from being nobodies to being a living parable of the very holy of holies. 
Can you see why Peter is struggling with this? Can you see me struggling to put this into words? I don't know how to even wrap my brain around this concept. What would actually be different for us if this was, well, this was understood this to be true in us? What is the right response from being rejected as, wrong, as, as, as crazy as this is? Now, don't, I do want to stop and remind us before we get, if, if we get prideful in this, to humble us before we get the wrong idea, as wondrous, as unthinkable as this idea is. Please don't miss that last phrase. That we offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We didn't tear the veil down. We didn't bring the Holy Spirit. He did. He is the mighty God who has brought these things to us to bring these things into us to give us the freedom to live this way. What is the right response to this truth? Um, when you read the passage where Peter meets Jesus, you get, the, you get the idea that Peter may have somehow, at some level, grasped some hint of all of this the first time he looked into Jesus' eyes and fully understood who he was dealing with. And so as we've gone through this, I want to show you there's a great the, the, the TV uh, show that we've referenced a few times. I want to show you the, the, the shot of the miraculous catch of fish and to show you what I think is a proper response to when you realize who it is you're dealing with. So um, let's watch this real quick and then continue to unpack this. I, I really think when I read through this, and just even the tiniest piece of it comes through to my heart, I think that's the moment Peter wants to create for us in First Peter. In example after example of what the gospel is, he wants us to experience a moment like that when we realize we stand before the one who we've been waiting for. The one who declares that our life could have value beyond anything we could possibly imagine. That not just on a tiny room in a, in a building on a hill somewhere in some foreign country that we will never have access to, but that the gospel has come to us and says, "This I now dwell in you. That's the exchange that I have for you. Peter wants us to know he didn't come up with this picture. He didn't come up with this analogy. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Peter says, Behold, I am laying a stone in, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice the honor for the stones. It's, it's, a, it's a shame, honor, culture. And to say, you will be put to shame if you choose a different cornerstone. Uh, the cornerstone is the one, I, I am a terrible at carpentry and I build things, and it looks like I built three different people built three different things stacked on top of each other. They make no sense relative to one another. There's, and, and so the idea of saying, how do I make something truly square so that it really works, the angles are all correct, and it's just a crazy idea. Mason's laughing because we dealt with this all week. And so, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thought that God would say, no, no, I have chosen a cornerstone. And men said, no, we don't like yours. No, no, we got something better. I'd rather build my life square to me, or square to culture, or square to religion, or square to something else. And he's going, what are you thinking? You're rejecting my cornerstone? And so God says, well, I will just believe that you reject it, I choose it. I will build based on my cornerstone, whether you don't or not. And let me tell you, you get done building on your cornerstone, and you will have nothing but shame. When people look at what you've constructed, they'll go, oh, bless his heart, Right? What is a, that is what a cornerstone is, but instead of shame, verse 7, 
So the honor is for you who believe, who build your life based with that cornerstone. There's honor in that. And this is an honor-shame culture. Everything came down to honor and shame at some level, or so much societally did. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God says, well, it's, I mean, you wouldn't choose it, but I do. See, that's how we deal with, that's how we deal with rejection, is we recognize that though the foolish and the ignorant have rejected us, the Almighty has chosen us, and that's better. So the honor for those who believe, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now that's wild. That's mixing metaphors here. He's the cornerstone, okay? Get that. And he's the stumbling block. He's the scandalon. He's the, the stone you trip over. Where did Peter get at the idea to put these two concepts together? The co- he's, for some, he's the cornerstone. For the rest, he's a stumbling block. Or as the poet Michael Card once said, everyone faces this. You either stumble and are broken and are saved, because only through brokenness comes salvation, or you fight it and are crushed, and you lose your soul. Everybody stumbles over Jesus. Where do you get to Peter to put the idea of putting these two together, the cornerstone and the stumbling stones? Well, he got it from his rabbi. Jesus told a parable once to the religious leaders about how there was a vineyard, and the, and, and the owner of the vineyard had left the, some managers to be in charge of it. He is clearly talking to them, and they know it. And the managers refuse to do it his way, and they end up beating his messengers and killing some of them. He finally sends his own son, and they kill him too. And in Luke 20, the parable ends this way. Luke 20, 16, 18, he will come, Jesus says, he will now come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they, the religious leaders, heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them. A scary language there, isn't it? But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, Jesus Jesus is quoting Psalms and Isaiah, and Peter's quoting Jesus quoting Psalms and Isaiah when he does this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, and there's plenty to stumble on, I understand. Mainly, my own biases, my own arrogance, my own secrets, The false mask that I hide behind, my desires and ambitions, my hurts, the power that I feel that comes from being a special person, a lone wolf, not part of the herd, and Jesus threatens all those. Those are other ways of saying malice, envy, hypocrisy. Those are the very things that we don't want to give up. Jesus threatens to take away my old garments, and I might not like some of the new ones that he gives me. I'm comfortable with the ones that I have. To, to, if, if you were here last week or to go back and listen to it, I like my rocks that I get to chew. They break my teeth, but they're my rocks. I prefer my pennies to your quarters because I get more of them. In my foolishness and my ignorance, I'm going to reject the cornerstone that God has chosen and choose me or something else instead. I fear to lose what I have or I'm unwilling to give up what is mine. And Jesus becomes a stone I can't get past. I'm just too smart for it, too clever, too something. And sadly, we've always known that not everyone will respond to the good news. Jesus said that many times. This new free identity in Him with cosmic significance and eternal values is not enough. We've always been warned that no matter the message, not everyone is willing to obey or to follow when they're called. 
Not everyone falls on their knees when they understand who Jesus is. According to one key commentary I looked at, Johann Bengel, who was um, a, a, a language expert from the 1700s, he says the word, that the, the linkage here, when it says, um, as they are destined to do, the as goes to those, connects to those who were um, stumbled. Listen, if you're disobedience, your destiny is to stumble. Your destiny is to fall, to be crushed. That is a very honor-shame understanding of this. If you disobey your parents, you will be shamed. That's the Hebrew mindset. If you disobey God, you will be shamed. In the end, the shame comes in the stumble. It is the shame of unbelief. Recall that Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus, the fail-safe stance of human beings, the automatic stance of human beings, is unbelief. That's the standard position. Keep in mind, the human race has a label on us that says, in need of saving. No one, no one gets born not in need of saving. John three sixteen through 18 Jesus teaches this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Listen, verse 18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So who will not follow? Who insists on the shame of unbelief and the consequences of disobedience? There's no call to stay there. It's not call, there's no cause. It's not necessary to stay there. God offers the exchange, the identity of being a living parable of the holy of holies. Again, a concept we cannot even grasp. That's beyond us, and yet maybe just enough a piece of it is enough. He calls, follow me. I would encourage you to answer that call. Answer it in advance like Peter did. Whatever you ask, I'll do it. Now ask, whatever it is. So stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know how to unpack the power of your word. I, I, it gives me comfort to watch Peter struggle to try to take this gospel that you gave him. That from the first moments of recognition all the way through for years of being with you, that he was continually trying to understand what this gospel was and how to wrap his mind around it. And how generous of, of, of him now to, to make pitch after pitch at us. Every one of them asking us to respond to hear, to understand, even, even to repent of our own understanding. God, I pray that for anyone who is here today that does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that we could celebrate together and, and pray together and enjoy you forever together. I thank you that you do call and that whosoever believes can know you forever. So, Father, I pray you would guide us in this. Do the work of your Spirit. Only your Spirit can do this in us, which is such a great thing. Help us to pray for one another, Lord. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So during this time, as we sing a little bit, if you want to sing, if the Spirit's leading you to sing, sing. If He's leading you to pray, please do so. If He's leading you to come here or where you are to fall on your knees before Him, do that. Listen to what the Spirit has for you today. Um, and obey whatever that is. That's my prayer for you.
Um, if you've also gone through our Welcome Home uh, team and through that process and you're ready to come join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to invite you to do that um, during this time as well. Um, I think that covers it. So listen to what the Spirit has for you. Cool.